Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune, and ND Insider. This is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to a long overdue edition of Pot of Gold at ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. We're also joined by our Dallas Bureau reporter, Carter Carls, who's been all over a busy month of recruiting for Notre Dame in July. It's been uh, nearly two months since our last podcast, so it feels good to be back. Um, it still feels sort of like a long way till we see actual football, but now that there seems to be a plan in place um, for what uh, Notre Dame season could look like, we I think it I f- at least feel more comfortable that we can start talking about what's to come. Um, before we get into our news discussions, um, I want to take a moment to promote our ND football special section um, that previews the season. It's a 28-page special section that will run in Sunday's South Bend Tribune um, in replacement of our annual magazine. It contains much of the same content you would get in the magazine, so it's not like uh, we're eliminating a ton of stuff there. So I think you will be um, pleasantly surprised by how much fits in a 28-page uh, special section. If you're an ND Insider subscriber, check your email uh, to redeem a free copy. Um, If you'd like to purchase a copy, you can do so at ndinsider.com forward slash buy the mag. Includes features on Brian Kelly, Jeremiah Usukoromoa, Liam Meikenberg, Ian Book, Mike Mickens, and John McNulty. And we have analysis of every position group, um, some insights into recruiting, and uh, much more. So um, you get a chance to check that out. It'll also be online on ndinsider.com for premium subscribers uh, on Sunday morning. So lots of lots of Notre Dame football content coming your way, and this podcast is just the start of it. Um, thankfully, there's, uh, like I mentioned, a more of a clear picture of, of what this season that we sort of previewed in our special section is going to be. Notre Dame will attempt to play an 11-game schedule with 10 of those games against ACC teams as a one-season participant in the conference. Um, I think this is kind of where I wanted to sort of not necessarily apologize, but say I was a little bit wrong. I sort of scoffed at the idea a few months ago um, that Notre Dame would not only be left scrambling if schools decided to go conference only, but um, I believe that uh, I was pretty dismissive of the concept of these conferences doing conference-only schedules completely. It didn't make a ton of sense to me. Um, I think I was thinking more geographically how it didn't necessarily make sense, Um, but I think it is, it is, it is come about mainly because they can help each other out with scheduling 
and also um, the setting the standards of testing within each conference. So I was I was wrong there. So I wanted to admit that. Um, but Notre Dame certainly didn't have to scramble with the, uh, because the ACC was helping out. So I felt good. So I think I was half right and half wrong there. Uh, so Eric, I want to start with you. Could you have ever imagined the schedule working out in this way before July? Not, not really, because I think at least in the early part of June, I thought that America would do better with the virus than we had. I thought that, you know, we, we had seen numbers coming down in all categories. And so I was pretty optimistic that we not only would have a college football season, I thought we'd have a much more regular college football season. I, I didn't think it was going to be perfect, but I thought we would be able to dance with the virus pretty successfully and that we would learn along the way. But then things went crazy. And they're really since late June, it's been a roller coaster for me as to whether we're going to have a season at all or not. And there are days where I feel optimistic about it and days where I feel like that Pete Thamel from Yahoo is going to be right and there's not going to be a season. And he's been predicting that, I think, since January. So, um, but uh, um, it's, I, I, I forgive you about the conference only thing, Tyler, because I think the concepts that we're, they were talking about in March and April are very different from the concepts that drove it in July and August. Right. Um, in that it became standardized testing that became kind of the issue and also uh, the fact that you could build schedule flexibility in. And, and everybody now, I mean, when people were talking about pushing the season back at some point early, that made absolutely no sense to me because I thought that's going to get you closer to the flu season overlap at the end of the season. But I think the hope, the only hope is now that the numbers in some of the hot spots where there's severe outbreaks in our country get go down to the point where we can have football. And when I talked to Jack Swarbrick this week, you know, one of the questions I asked him was, is there a drop dead date when you, you feel confident that we're even going to get to the starting line? And he said, no. Yeah. So I think, the, you know, up to two days before the first games kick off, we're still not going to know if there's going to be a football game, you know, two to 48 hours later. Speaking of Jack Swarbrick, what do you think of, the deal that Notre Dame and Jack Swarbrick uh, made with ACC to compete in the conference for this year? I think it was a lot of foresight on his part because I think there were a couple different ways when this started, when, when schedule started to morph that, you know, I, I know Brian Kelly said our phone's ringing off the hook of people that want to play us. But I think Jack knew all along that the Big Ten and the Pac-12 were serious about this conference-only concept. And he thought that if those two did that, that it was going to be very difficult for the other three to just have normal schedules. And so I think he just felt like this is still possibly Brian Kelly's best team. 
potentially, and he needed to get them in a position where they could play for a playoff spot if the season, you know, unfurled the way that, you know, even if it was in an unusual way, that this is a team that deserved a run at a playoff. Yeah, and I think that kind of transitions to the kind of breaking down the schedule a bit. I, I think on the face, you sort of look at the schedule and say, oh, well, this kind of got easier. They don't have to play USC. They don't have to play Wisconsin. Um, maybe this, this schedule is easier. Um, there's not a lot of necessarily preseason ranked teams on this list. Um, they added North Carolina, who has the potential to be a pretty good team. Um, but overall, the schedule seems to have maybe gotten easier. Do you agree with that? Or um, is, it, is it maybe not that much easier than maybe people think on face value? I think it's kind of how you look at it. it. There's a couple ways to look at it in terms of overall record or in terms of path to the playoff. And I, I agree. I think you're losing some potentially good teams, USC on the road, Wisconsin up at a difficult site. That's going to, even though it was going to be a 50, 50 crowd right. you know, playing in green Bay, isn't a friendly venue. And then I think maybe, Again, they're always a curveball, and you if you're having to spend training camp time preparing for their triple option, I think that's tough. What people are ignoring, though, is that you have to play Clemson twice if you're going to get into the playoff, and you may have to play them three times if both of you make the playoff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um, to beat Clemson twice I think is an incredible – you know, I think you could get them once, you know, in the right circumstances and everything else. I think beating them twice is very difficult. And I think if Notre Dame were able to split with them, they'd still be alive for a playoff spot. But uh, in that sense, at the very top, I think it's more difficult to get to the playoff with this. But overall, the schedule is easier. I think USC and Wisconsin – are better than North Carolina and Virginia Tech, but then you just add the Clemson element into it, and you're completely right. I mean, two times – I've been dreaming about that three-time scenario where <laughs> maybe Clemson blows out Notre Dame in the regular season and then Notre Dame wins in the ACC championship game, and they have to put both of them in because of chaos happening everywhere else. Um, or maybe some of the top teams can't play for some reason – uh, but, yeah, I mean, if you have to play Clemson twice, that almost makes the schedule harder, in my opinion, just because, I mean, I would rather play Clemson and Wisconsin than Clemson and Clemson, right? I, I, I agree. I, I think, um, you know, it's the, – the other thing that's going to be really interesting, I wrote about this yes, yesterday or this week, is that now you've eliminated – every meaningful non-conference game and an almost all non-conference non-conference games period so comparing the leagues is going to be even more difficult because yeah. you always had a few games that would kind of connect everybody and the ACC hasn't had a great reputation beyond Clemson the past couple years and so and and I mentioned that in Pro Football Focus's top 50 players for the season, there's 17 from the ACC this year. Last year there were seven, and six of them were from Clemson. So it's it's incumbent upon the ACC to kind of toot their horn 
you know, and get people, especially the college football playoff committees. I don't know exactly how you do that to get their attention to say, hey, we're a lot better than we were last year when there yeah. was no other top 25 team except for Clemson. And yet the AAC had three ranked teams. Yeah, I think I think one on the pro football focus thing, it'd be interesting to see how many of those players actually play this year because some top players are are opting out. Uh, I think notably in the ACC, uh, Greg Rousseau. I'm not sure if that's how you say his name from Miami, the defensive end. He has opted out. And he's considered a potential top five pick, maybe. Um, but the, the conference thing is interesting to me because I think Notre Dame fans are loving the idea and are thumbing their noses at people that say you need to play in a conference because the, it makes your schedule – it'll make your schedule tougher. Notre Dame's co- schedule is easier. But then Notre Dame fans are pointing out this season, hey, look, this schedule is actually easier than what we would have played without a conference. But I think part of the reason that fans from other schools are knocking Notre Dame is not necessarily the, the schedule difficulty, but I think that they still have a path into the playoff with that schedule. And so I think – Notre Dame, their end goal is to make the playoff. And in this, I think in this, I think it's probably going to be harder to make the playoff with this current schedule than it would be with their previous schedule, if that makes sense. I, having to play Clemson twice, um, and obviously maybe, maybe it doesn't work out that maybe, maybe for some reason Clemson loses twice. Notre Dame beats them in November, and Notre Dame has to play North Carolina twice or some, another ACC team twice, or maybe they play Miami in the, for the, the ACC championship or something. But – so I think, I think Notre Dame fans should probably tone down the hey our, our conference schedule is easier because it, or because uh, we normally play a harder schedule. But so I, I think I think both sides of the argument have have fair points in this in this discussion. But I I think it's it is safe to say that this, the regular season schedule overall is easier. But um, it's certainly not not a cakewalk. Um, you mentioned the Navy game. Obviously Notre Dame not having to play that is. One less thing Notre Dame has to worry about in terms of the triple option, but were you surprised that Notre Dame uh, couldn't find a way to work that out with with what the ACC wanted uh, Notre Dame to have to do? A, a little bit, and when I spoke with Jack Scorberg Thursday evening about why it didn't happen, I kind of had that scenario in my mind when I asked him the question, and the scenario was that you know Notre Dame would have had to ask either ask for an exception to the rule about playing the game in the home state of the ACC team, which in this case was Notre Dame, or they were going to have to fiddle with their schedule schedules in the future to give Navy a home game back by moving the game to South Bend. And I agree that ACC let you in the, and if the very first thing out of your mouth is, well, could you break these couple rules for us? I think that's a bad, bad look for Notre Dame. I think they needed to, um, to, to go with what the ACC laid out. Now, as far as future schedules, I mean, maybe you could have scheduled something so far into the future that the next AD was going to have to deal with the headache. But the problem is if you try to do it for 2021, you get down to six home games instead of seven home games. And I don't, especially with trying to recoup revenue from NBC, from fans in the stands, that's not a year where you want to give up a home game. 
So I think Notre Dame did the right thing in just kind of rolling with it. They did kind of recommit to Navy for six more years on the contract. Um, and so I think that was a good concession. I, it would have been cool to, for them to play Navy, but I understand why they didn't. Yeah, yeah, a lot of schools are going through having to sort of end a lot of their traditions or change, at least change them. Um, I mean, um, even Michigan and Ohio State are, aren't playing at the end of the season this year, so a, a lot of a lot of schools are having to make adjustments. So certainly, it's it's a bit. I think for a lot of people, um, disappointing that the Navy series ended. I imagine Navy fans aren't, aren't very happy about that, even though they're not necessarily going to always beat Notre Dame. But I think they really value that 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 annual game, but. Um, I was I was a bit a bit surprised how it worked out. Although once the ACC announced its ruling, it just it just didn't make sense how they would make that work. That they would be able to figure out a way to to alternate the home and away years or or do something like that. And um, I I don't know what leverage Notre Dame had in negotiations with the ACC that they could have made the exception because then all the other schools would have wanted to have done the same. And I I think probably. Looking back on it now, the ACC would pro- probably wishes it didn't leave the one plus one and just di- just opted with conference only. I think they left that open so the SEC would make the same agreement. And when the SEC um, decided they were only going to go conference only because a lot of those schools um, in those in those states play each other um, for rivalry games like Clemson and South Carolina um, or or even Kentucky and Louisville. Um, I-, I think that they're um, the the f- plan kind of fell apart. I, I I wouldn't have been surprised if the ACC just said, okay, now that other conferences aren't going to do that, we're going to call off our non-conference games too. But um, they're sticking with the plan, and so that means Notre Dame will be hosting Western Michigan, which I'm sure everyone will be very, very fired up about. But, hey, at this point, if it's football and it's being played, I think we're all going to take it. So that's all right. Um, beyond the Clemson games, for both of you guys, what what games are the most intriguing ones to you? I'll say the two that kind of jump out at me are North Carolina the Friday night after Thanksgiving on the road and Syracuse at home in December. That would be Notre Dame's first home game in December since 1953. And you would not – I mean, we don't know if there's going to be crowds in the stands throughout the season, but you definitely wouldn't have the students there. Uh, for the December 5th. They go home for the semester Thanksgiving weekend. So that would be really, really weird atmosphere. Not that the rest are going to seem all that normal, but those are the two games just because of the unusualness of them that jump out at me. Yeah. Boston college obviously stands out to me because right after the Clemson game, Phil Jerkovic, probably going to be the starter it just has the makings of a weird trap game where there's going to be a lot of weird involved and and obviously it'll be kind of a revenge game for Phil Jerkovic North Carolina is big just because again that'll be a little weird Friday night after Thanksgiving and probably the second best team Notre Dame will face and then Syracuse yeah no students on campus I mean it'll feel like a ghost town almost no 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 one in the stands maybe uh so be interesting to see. I'm also just curious, like, um, what it'll look like for schools that come from areas that have, you know, 
tons of, of cases, you know, like a, a Florida state kind of school. Um, even, I mean, th- this, I don't think they're in a terrible area, but Duke, I think that'll be interesting game one, just to see what it looks like. That'll be our first taste of what college football will look like, what precautions they're taking. Uh, so Duke might not be like the most intriguing matchup in the world, but it'll be our first look at what this looks like for Notre Dame, what this looks like for the ACC, and what it looks like for Notre Dame to be in the ACC. So I think that'll be a fun game too. Yeah, yeah. Kind of going with, off of what uh, Eric talked about, Jack Swarbrick saying of not knowing when they're not really necessarily having a date of knowing when this is actually going to happen. I mean, we could wake up the Saturday of that Duke game and then all of a sudden they're not playing that Duke game. I mean, who knows? It's just a, it's gonna every every game is going to be very strange in the circumstances surrounding them um, the, if the season Yeah, it, it's it's really the thing to watch with those two teams is once their student populations are introduced, right. Notre Dame's is reintroduced in full blast on Monday, classes start Monday, whether the numbers in cases. Now, I think you're going to have some positives, but whether how well they deal with the little mini outbreaks, you know, if they're able to get that under control right away. If the numbers start to rise and you start to pause training camps and practices, then I would make, you know, plans to watch the Korean baseball league that weekend. Yeah. And, and Notre Dame's are the players still going to be living under normal circumstances where they'll be rooming with someone that isn't, isn't necessarily a football player. Like, because obviously at certain schools they have football housing essentially where the football teams kind of live together. And so I think they, those schools would have a better chance of maybe creating a bubble around those, those players. Obviously they still have to control whether or not they're hanging out with people off of their, away from their living situation. But um, Notre Dame's, it might be a little bit more complicated when it comes to that. Well, from what I was told, they, you know, because I thought, well, this Morrison concept has worked pretty well. Would right. they just continue it? They are going to move into their dorms and their apartments. So the people that live in apartments that live with football players only, they're going to have a little bit more control, but they'll also have a little bit more responsibility in terms of freedom because those dorms are going to be super monitored to keep people out that don't belong in that dorm. I think the thing where I would feel good as a parent, as an administrator, as a coach, and as a player is how detailed Notre Dame's testing is for the average student. And so that's the one area that the thing that you can't control is the students and the football players going out into the South Bend community where our level of infection isn't super high, but it's not, you know, New Zealand either. So, um, so, you know, that's where it's going to get pretty tricky. Uh, In the, there was a lot of news this week, but before some of that came out, uh, Notre Dame announced that wide receiver Kevin Austin Jr. had surgery on a fact, a fractured fifth metatarsal in his foot. Um, The release said that he was expected to return this fall. Um, but it seems uncertain of how long that timeline will be. I, it seems like a month or two would be a good guess. Um, what do you guys think of how big of a loss this is without having Kevin Austin in the offense, at least for the start of the season? When I looked at the revised schedule, I think it's more tolerable that it's happening in the 
timetable that it is. You know, you look at Duke, Western Michigan, and Wake Forest. Those are probably, if you said he's on a maybe six to eight week timetable, those are the games that he would miss. But but let's just kind of look at him in general terms in case it lingered. I mean, he's the most dynamic player among their skill players on offense right now. The good news is there are lots of numbers that can replace him. Uh, but in terms of making um, the job difficult for an opposing defensive coordinator, he forces you into a lot of decisions that would open up things for the other receivers where I don't know that Ben Skoranek or Javon McKinley do that for you. I think they're going to be good players. And I, I'm really excited about the wide receiver core beyond Kevin Austin. But Kevin Austin is in a different league than everybody else. And, I mean, think about think about it, too. Like, Notre Dame could have not gotten Bennett Skoranek. They could have not given an extra year to Javon McKinley. And doing that is looking smarter by the day. Now those two guys appear to be have a big role in the offense. and. You know, they're not Kevin Austin, but they should be serviceable in those three games that, you know, are probably going to be blowouts. Um, another guy I think is worth mentioning, I told Tyler this and might be a hot take, but Jordan Johnson, I, I truly believe that he is someone who could push for time if, if, he, if everything is, lines up for him. He's in that spot, that, that outside boundary wide receiver spot. And to me – I think when you're just comparing the three, again, could be a hot take, I don't know. But I think among those three, he's the best at creating separation. He's a, he was a five-star wide receiver on Rivals for a reason. We'll see if he could even see the field. It's hard for freshmen to, to really push for the field right away. But when you're just looking at skill, when you're looking at long-term projection, he should be a guy that will have a tremendous impact um, lots of recruiting analysts I've talked to compare him to Michael Floyd, former star at Notre Dame, doesn't have a lot of weaknesses in his game. So to me, he seems like a guy that could play right away. But again, with everything that's been going on and the lack of, of I guess, real, real-time reps and chemistry and, and feel to, to have, maybe that has hindered his development a little bit, but, but maybe not. Maybe he's someone that could come in. But again, Skoranek, McKinley, those are the two main guys to, to watch for. And then I think Johnson, I think he's a real sleeper. And I feel like he's not getting enough, enough talk right now. That's why I feel like he's worth mentioning. Brian, Brian Kelly, when I did talk to him last month, brought up Jordan Johnson without me bringing him up. So I thought that was interesting. He, he brought up Tyree, Jordan Johnson, and Michael Mayer in a handful of players that were kind of jumping out at him. Now, again, they were not yet in walkthroughs at that point. This was kind of through testing and kind of very informal kind of settings. But, um, you know, it'll be interesting to talk to Brian Kelly in the coming days and find out if he still feels as confident about Jordan Johnson's progress. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, my kind of rebuttal to Carter was that I almost think it maybe might even hurt Jordan, because I think this makes it more clear. I think Ben Skronik probably steps in as the starting boundary receiver, whereas if Kevin Austin was 
playing that maybe Ben Skronik would play maybe some of the field and maybe a bit of a rotation with Braden Lindsay. And then, so then I put a lineup of Skronik and then McKinley and then Jordan Johnson at the boundary receiver. So I don't know that it necessarily shortens his path to the playing field, but um, I'm, I'm interested to see what those guys can do. I, I'm, I'm interested. I'm really interested to see Skoranek because I know when I talked to him back when he first decided to transfer to Notre Dame, he was very confident in his athletic ability and um, was almost excited that people were maybe discounting some of his athletic ability. I mean, he he was confident in his speed. We're talking close to four four speed, I think potentially even um, if he's to be believed. Um, but so we'll see. And I know he's worked a lot with, a lot with Ian Book, and they seem to have a very good relationship. Um, so that that should go a long way as well. So um, I think um, Kevin Austin going down opens the door up, up for him even more, um, and we'll see how they can handle it. But, yeah, I think in terms of getting Austin back, you would like probably like to have him by the Florida State game. I think Florida State just has better athletes than those other teams that Notre Dame is playing earlier in the season, and that's, that's the kind of player that you would want on the field for that game, even if Florida State hasn't been as good in recent years. But – um, it's going to be – I'm curious to see how his recovery goes because I did some kind of looking back on other athletes that have had similar injuries at Notre Dame. Uh, Tom Noy pointed out that Bonte Colson missed two months of his senior season with a, with a similar injury. Um, and Myron T- Tangabaloa Mosa actually missed the rest of the regular season in 2018 after playing in the season opener with what was described as, as a similar injury. Now, I, I say described intentionally because – we're getting that through Brian Kelly. It's not necessarily the doctors explaining to us, and there could certainly be differences in those injuries. Just because you broke your fifth metatarsal, there's different ways to break it and different parts of the metatarsal that you could break. And So I think there's different severities. I mean, everyone recovers different too, so it'll be interesting to see how Kevin uh, recovers from that. The uh, July, like I mentioned earlier at the start of the show, Carter was a busy month for recruiting. Um, Notre Dame added four 2021 commits, offensive lineman Joe Alt, cornerback Chance Tucker, running back Logan Diggs, and tight end Mitchell Evans. And they also added their first two 2022 commits in Joey Tonona and tight end uh, offensive lineman Joey Tonona and tight end Jack Nickel. Um, Carter, which one of those recruits do you think is the best talent of the bunch? Best talent. Um, I'm torn between Joey Tonona and Chance Tucker. I think Joey, I still want to get a little bit more information on him. He's offensive lineman out of Zionsville, four-star guy, um, just completed his sophomore year high school. So still want to get a little bit more affiliated, familiarized with him. But Chance Tucker is someone I'm looking at as just your prototypical underrated three-star cornerback. Uh, and I think – not having the this evaluation period really hurt him uh, badly because he's he's a track star in California. He the first time he had ever ran a 100 meter dash in a competitive race, he ran a 10.97, which you know isn't like the craziest time in the world. But he truly believed that had he been able to um, you know start his race right and shake off the rust and really learn how to run that race. He could have had a time in the 10-7, range. And you're flirting with Braden Lindsay type of speed there once you get to that kind of speed. Um, but not only the speed, he also brings a lot of great length. 
uh, at six foot one and uh, got, has the long arms. He's really good in press coverage, plays decent competition, physical cornerback, brings versatility. I mean, he could play nickel as well. And really just kind of seeing what Mike Mickens and what Notre Dame has prioritized in quarterbacks, he seems to have. Mike Mickens as a former track star, and Eric wrote about this in his story in, in the special section. He really likes the track background. They really like the verified speed, the versatility, the length. All three of Notre Dame's cornerback commits kind of have those traits. Chance Tucker for sure has those traits. He's a, he's a low-ranked three-star cornerback, and so I think had he had the full evaluation, had he gone to camps, had he had the 10-7 time, maybe you're talking about a high-ranked three-star recruit, maybe a low-ranked four, but now he's a high three, and I think he's really underrated. And among those that list, I think he's the one that should be talked about the most. Now, Notre Dame could add a couple more commitments in the coming days. We're recording on Friday, shortly afternoon. Um, and Friday night, linebacker Prince Colley is expected to announce his commitment um, to whatever school he chooses. And on Saturday night, Rocco Spindler, offensive lineman um, from Michigan, will be announcing his commitment decision. Um, do you feel uh, that Notre Dame will add both of those guys to its class by the end of the weekend? I think they will go two for two. I think. Uh, it would be it will be a major weekend for Notre Dame when you consider how important those guys are to the class and then just how good they are to the class. I think for Rocco Spindler, interior O-line is one of the biggest position needs for Notre Dame. And he may well be the best player committed to Notre Dame's class when it's all said and done. He might not be ranked that way, but well, this well. is someone – you're saying this in the same class with Tyler Buckner? I, I am. I know, you lo- I know you love Tyler Buckner, so I had to bring that up. I know, and that should say a lot about Rocco Spindler. Look, he's got the NFL bloodlines. His dad played nine seasons in the NFL. He's got the toughness of playing both sides of the football on an extremely high level. He was first-team uh, first All-State as a defensive lineman and as an offensive lineman. If Notre Dame wanted, they could use him as a defensive tackle. That's how good he is. Um, he, he has the off-the-field makeup. He, he's got the toughness, the size. He's already six foot five, 315. Uh, that's pretty big for a high schooler. And um, you just turn on the tape, and, and he's a brawler. He really, really flashes. And so I think he very well could be the best player in the class. Definitely has the highest floor. Like, at, at bare minimum, he's going to be a great two- to three-year starter for Notre Dame. That's the minimum for him. So, and to say that is, is pretty crazy. But, again, I think interior line is a huge need. At linebacker, Prince Colley, definitely an interesting prospect. It reminds a lot of people of Jeremiah Lusakoromoa, just because he's kind of a tweener. He could be a safety. He could be a linebacker. Maybe he could play inside at Buck. Kind of that versatile guy who – for his high school, plays a few different positions. Um, definitely a guy who is great in space and, and shows a lot of athleticism. That's why he gets some of those jock comparisons. But looks like Notre Dame's only taken one linebacker this class, and there's a lot of talk. You know, 
they sure seem to be taking their time with this. But wow, it's paying off, uh, presumably, if they get Prince Collie tonight, which I think they will. I think he's a four-star caliber guy. Rocco Spindler, a five-star caliber guy. Get those two in back-to-back days. That's a pretty, pretty big weekend. Yeah, I'm curious. I, in the last recruiting cycle, they, they passed on linebackers, and one guy that seemed like they could potentially have added was Cody Simon. And it almost seemed like Notre Dame wasn't convinced that they could have added him. And when, when I heard that, I thought, well, maybe they like other guys in the 21 class better. And it didn't necessarily seem like – that is actually how it played out because it didn't – other than Prince Cowley, it didn't seem like Notre Dame maybe had a chance of getting anyone in this 2021 class. So who do you like better as a prospect, Cody Simon or Prince Cowley? Man, that's tough. I, I think I'd go with Cody Simon just because I think he's the surest bet of, of the two. Um, I don't think you can go wrong with either, though. I, I, I was skeptical about how they handled everything because um, – they passed on the linebacker last cycle and sure they've got four linebackers who are sophomores, JD Bertrand, Aceto Kwanu, Jack Kaiser, Maris Lufau, all seem to be doing well, all seem to be flashing in practice. seems like the coaches are high on them, but you can't go two classes without a linebacker back to back. I don't, I don't, I don't care what, how much you love these sophomores. You, you just can't do that. And so when you go a whole year not taking one linebacker, presumably you'd had a year in advance to recruit the next class. But it took them so long to, to make up any ground this class at linebacker. It seemed like they either weren't offering linebackers or the, off, the linebackers they did offer weren't all that interested in Notre Dame. You know, I would talk to them and they're like, yeah, I mean, we're probably not going to visit, honestly. Um, they, I think they only had one or two linebackers that they offered out of like 10 that visited Notre Dame. Um, well, all that goes away. All that skepticism. I was wrong. Everyone else was wrong. They knew what they were doing, I guess, because Prince Cauley, um, is going to be a heck of a linebacker. I think he fits into what Notre Dame wants to do at Rover. And then the upside is there for what he could do at Buck. And if you just get him alone, it's a great linebacker class because I don't think they had to take more than one linebacker. They, I guess they could take a second near the end if they want to, but him alone is a great haul. Yeah. Um, for those that don't remember, Cody Simon is the younger brother of Shane Simon. Um, he ended up at Ohio State, which – has a lot of linebackers with sort of Notre Dame connections. Uh, Tommy Eichenberg and Liam Eichenberg's little brother is, is a linebacker for Ohio State. And some of uh, Ohio State starters are former Notre Dame recruiting targets. Pete Warner was a former Notre Dame commit um, out of Cathedral uh, in Indiana. Um, Baron Browning was a big Notre Dame target who ended up at Ohio State. Tough Borlands from, I believe, Bolingbrook, Illinois. So sort of Notre Dame country ended up at Ohio State. Um, so interesting to see how the linebacker groups play out at both schools in the next couple of years because Notre Dame and Ohio State were going after a lot of the same guys there. Um, la- lastly, before we get to some uh, questions from our listeners, what, Carter, do you think like is the biggest need left in this 2021 class? Wide receiver is the one that pops out to me, and this is assuming they get Collie and Spindler this weekend. Mm-hmm. Lorenzo Styles is one heck of a player. 
I think he is going to be a star at the next level. But he could be a star at cornerback when it's all said and done. He's he's kind of that, will he be a slot receiver? Will he be a cornerback? He's pretty good at both, so it might depend on the need. Um, and then he's the only receiver committed to the class. But I like what Notre Dame is doing at wide receiver recruiting. Even though they lost Deion Colsey, I think they have a great chance at landing Jaden Thomas, who's a four-star receiver out of Atlanta. He's got a lot of ties to Notre Dame. Uh, his best friend is the brother of Mick Asap, who's a walk-on uh, running back at Notre Dame. And uh, he's been to the university, went to the Virginia Tech game last year got a whole tour of campus with the ASAP family. And I just think if you're looking for the next commit after Collie and Spindler, Thomas seems to be that option. Um, then I think, you know, I think they can take two receivers this class, but if you're looking for a third, obviously Deion Colsey remains an option, but Dante Thornton, I believe he's going to drag out his recruitment until January. He really likes Oregon right now. He's a four-star wide receiver and out of Baltimore. Um, but I think Notre Dame is second place. So if Notre Dame can work on him a little bit more, and if they somehow landed Dante Thornton, I mean, you're talking about one heck of a haul if he were to join Thomas and Styles. Outside of that, I felt like the big needs going into the cycle were a defensive back interior O-line. You add Spindler and Fisher, that's big time. Defensive back, I think they could add one more corner, one more safety. We'll see how that plays out, but um, I think Mike Mickens has done a really good job adding three cornerbacks that I'm really high on. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys, are, are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit your questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. And Carter Carls is at Carter Carls. Uh, first one we have, get Eric back involved here, is from Andrew Barlow at Barlandrew. Why does the – and I'm not sure if he was saying this tongue-in-cheek or not. I, I think he may have been, but I'm not positive. Why does the ACC hate America? <laughs> if they don't, why else would they have laid the groundwork for ending the long-running, mutual respect-driven series with Navy? Yeah, I think Andrew, who's a Navy guy, I believe, um, wrote this, and a Notre Dame guy, um, wrote this before he had read the Jack Swarbrick explanation. Um, but, you know, I don't think the, that <laughs> ACC was even thinking about Notre Dame Navy when they put the policy together. Um, and so... I think it was an unintended consequence of them just trying to protect um, and make this non-conference thing simpler instead of making it more complicated and making it to the point that teams would have to maybe cancel their non-conference games and some other teams play them. You also would potentially get more revenue from having a home game. So they didn't want teams, you know, for example, uh, to, to, to play a non-conference game where they were going to lose that home game. Now they conceivably could have, you know, Florida and Florida state could have played at Florida, Georgia and Georgia tech could have played at Georgia. 
Um, so I think it was very unintended consequence. So, and I know that I know Andrew a little bit. So, uh, I do think a little bit it was tongue in cheek. Yeah. I, I think I mentioned earlier, I don't know what Notre Dame could have used as maybe leverage. I, I'm the the money situation is interesting to me because I think everyone sort of clutched their pearls when they saw that Notre Dame was uh, going to throw in its NBC money into the pool and to be split among all the other schools. But unless the, some of the previous numbers are off, it seems like Notre Dame is probably going to make more money off of this deal with the ACC. Getting the ACC TV contract money yeah. is probably more than what Notre Dame is making off of the NBC contract. So just because that. The, the money is coming from some of the money is coming from a, a deal that was only Notre Dame and NBC. I think Notre Dame's actually going to be make, made better financially because of this. So maybe, I mean, maybe if Notre Dame wanted to say, no, keep your ACC money, we're going to keep our NBC money and then let us play Navy. Maybe that could have been something they could have worked out. But I think given that financial situations, I think Notre Dame's going to want every dime it can get its hand on because everything is very uh, uncertain and, and uh, financial stability of these universities and their, these athletic departments is, is, is being shaken. Yeah. Had they chosen Navy over Western Michigan, there would have been a financial consequence in that Notre Dame would have had to pay a cancellation fee to right. Western Michigan. You know, the, all the other games kind of dropped off on their own, but Western Michigan didn't. So you would be choosing to move a game to your campus instead of playing a scheduled game where you had a big buy or you had a big payday for that Mac team. Right. So Notre Dame would have been on the hook for that. All right. Next question we got is from DOC at DOC, DO Carroll one. What impact does the pandemic have on Kelly's contract extension? Does the pandemic's impact on this season affect how much longer Kelly wants to be head coach? Well, I think, the the contract extension is going to happen. I don't know that there's going to be a big trumpeting of it. I mean, it may be kind of behind the scenes until it's appropriate to announce it. Um, I know that Alabama made a, I think, made a bad move with announcing a race for Steve Sarkeesian. Yeah. Um, and, I, I mean, a big raise. I think that was really – uh, a bad thing. I know Lincoln Riley from Oklahoma, the head coach got an extension, but again, they didn't trumpet the financial terms of it. Um, so I just think when the timing is right, they'll mention that there has been a, an extension for Brian Kelly, but it's just, they need to wait for the right moment uh, to do that. Do I think he's going to coach fewer years? I, I don't think so. I, I think, the one thing that's kind of weird about all this is this is a team that he really, really was looking forward to coaching. You know, the 2012 team, I think, I don't think Brian Kelly knew how good that team was going to be until it started playing the season. I think he knows that this 2020 team has a chance to be his best and he's known it for a while, but I think he's probably going to coach three or four more years. Yeah, I mean, I guess if this doesn't go as planned, maybe maybe he'd want to coach longer, and it would maybe feels better about a team four years down the line than he would feel about in two years. But I, I don't know. Yeah, with, with I don't see it impacting too much. Um, 
I think it's probably been a pretty stressful year, but I think, I think there's also could be a lot of, uh, it could be pretty rewarding too, if you could see this through. Um, and if things go well with your players, I think that has to be very reassuring in your leadership of the program and how the players have responded to you. And that like, if he's getting towards the end of the career, you would think that maybe the players aren't responding to the head coach as well, but if they still are and they, they really value um, his direction of the program, I think that could be reassuring and maybe re-energizing it. Not that I don't, I don't know that Brian Kelly needs to be re-energized right now. I think he's pretty happy with where, where he's at and where this program is at. But um, I think that um, could be a benefit maybe, but in the contract extension, I think one thing that Notre Dame has in its, in its favor is that it's not a public school. So it, the numbers of the contract extension won't necessarily come out unless they're leaked in some way. Um, and I would think that given the circumstances, the people that would be in position to leak that information would not be leaking the information if they wanted to keep that private um, because of the financial um, uh, repercussions that this pandemic is having. Um, so I don't know what, what they'll do or when they'll announce it. I imagine most of the details are probably already have been worked out. Um, and uh, it's kind of up to Notre Dame to figure out how they want to handle it PR-wise in terms of making the announcement is, is my, my guess. I don't know that there would be a lot of haggling left to do, but maybe, maybe something comes up in this situation that Brian Kelly's like, hey, wait a minute, maybe I should add this to my contract, but I, I don't know what, how any of this will impact what's, what's been going on. He's going to have limited questions from me in his next contract. <laughs> but, um, the one thing that he's done in his contract extensions that's been kind of interesting is it's been less about the bottom line for his salary and more about leveraging the improvements to the football program, facilities, um, and, and things of that nature, and co- certain commitments, his voice in certain areas. And I would think in this negotiation, part of what he's asking for is the completion of the renovation of the Goog. You know, it started with the indoor athletic center and but there are a lot of plans that uh in terms of getting food service um you know in there and study centers and recovery centers things that are going to make the football program better those are some of the things he negotiates which is kind of interesting yeah he's been talking about that for so long maybe that's what makes him stay in Notre Dame longer he wants to wants to see that through because it seems like he's been talking about it for a quite some time now and it hasn't really come to fruition at least the the indoor athletics uh center came through but they haven't expanded on the goog yet and i don't know how uh the pandemic has affected the the viability of of those renovations either so we'll, we'll see how that all plays out next question i think we could probably all jump in on this one from kevin calabria at kevin calabria one what did you think the shortcomings were in phil jacovic's game or arm will he be an nfl quarterback I thought the shortcoming in Phil Jakovic's game was above the eyebrows. I think that he got into his head too much in terms of what people were thinking and the whole dynamic of, you know, whether, whether he was going backwards. I think he just had his antenna up too much. Um, I, I think there were things in his delivery and so forth that needed to be worked on but he's an incredible athlete and I never was as down on him as I think a lot of of the other people on our beat. I think that he was a guy that you could certainly fix things. 
And I would have loved to seen what he could have become as a quarterback at Notre Dame. So I'll let you guys answer because I think, you know, there's a lot to like about Phil Jakovic. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it was a mental thing. Also, I mean, physically, mechanics too, I know was always kind of an issue for him in high school and then changing the throwing motion. A lot of talk about that. I think he was always trying to maybe be someone that he wasn't or at least trying to change who he was. Um, and I don't know, maybe maybe he's not a guy who is meant for a Notre Dame offense. Maybe he's meant to be someone who runs the ball quite a bit and uses his athleticism a little bit more. But the thing is, he's got three years of eligibility now to prove it. And at Boston College – they're really going to be relying on him to make a lot of plays and he's not going to be playing just unbelievable competition every week. So, I mean, I would think he's got enough time to get it figured out. Now, if he's still changing the throw in motion and, and he's doing this and doing that, and they don't really have a plan for him offensively. You know, I know they, the coach that they've hired is more of a defensive coach. I, I don't know. That's the, the problem. I think it's going to require coaching for him to kind of get over that hump because, again, it, it might also be the fit for him uh, and, and what they need to do as an offense. So he's got enough time, though. Um, I think he has the skills to become an NFL starter or, or an NFL player. I mean, we've seen some pretty average – college quarterbacks make the NFL. Um, Kyle Allen was starting games for the Carolina Panthers last year. So it's certainly possible, but uh, he's got three years to do it. You just wanted to call Kyle Allen average. Uh, I did. <laughs> um, I, I would like to, since Eric said every, his issue was above the eyebrows, I would like to say that his eyebrows specifically were the issue for Phil Jacobic. <laughs> uh, but – but but I, I do I do agree that I think it was a confidence thing. He he lost his confidence. Certainly his accuracy wasn't where it needed to be. But I think his his, his a lack of confidence probably contributed some to that. Um, and this may be unfair to say, but I I imagine that it, playing for Chip Long probably isn't the best situation for a guy who's lost his confidence. I don't see Chip as a guy that's uh, going to be. Uh, warm and fuzzy with a guy that's really lost his confidence and going to be able to help that kid get that back in, in some situations like that. But maybe, maybe I'm going a little too far with that. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what happens with, with Phil out there. I think, I think a lot of the throwing mechanic stuff, you can figure your way through. And as long as you get consistent with it, even if you're doing it in a weird way, um, I think um, you can get around that. I, I think, with those limitations, he could still be a very good college quarterback. Um, I don't know that I would say that he would be an NFL quarterback at this point, but um, he certainly has a lot of times to to fix that and, and put himself on a better path than the one he was. He seemed to be on at Notre Dame. He's certainly a hard worker um, and and is very motivated. Um, so I think he's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Now, certainly, you could want to be all these things, but it's one thing to want to be it, and it's another thing to actually be it. So we're gonna have to see how how he can transform himself and make himself a better quarterback and see if that can lead to success for him at, at Boston College. Next question is from Josh Melton at, at Joshua Melton. 
Would you be so bold as to predict that Kevin Austin will be Andy's leading receiver, assuming that we have a season? Or with the injury or other factors, would you guess someone else? How far back does this set the Irish offensively? I know we touched on that a little bit, but what do you guys think? Do you think Austin could be well, the leading receiver still? I think he could, and I think I will predict that. Um, because I think among the other receivers, the rotation is going to be pretty deep. And so there's not going to be somebody that piles up a bunch of numbers over the season. I think they're going to be some parity among there. I think we're also going to see the backs thrown to quite a bit. And I think we're going to see parity among the tight ends in terms of receptions. I mean, maybe Tommy Tremble is the, is the leading receiver based on Austin missing some games, but I'll, I'll go ahead and push some chips in on Austin. I think it's got to be Brayden Lindsey. I mean, I just I think he's going to have too many explosive plays. He's going to have too many. Uh, and, and I think he is finally, you know, the end of last season, he's finally established himself as a guy who can be an every-down guy and not just that niche guy. I think he was mostly a niche guy until the very end of the season. And he's, he's going to be interesting because a lot of his explosive plays could be, you know, counted as rushes, you know, these little tosses or these little jet sweeps. So maybe, maybe it'll hurt him if, if, uh, if those are counted as rushes. But I just think there's so much uncertainty with this injury. Uh, you mentioned some of the Notre Dame guys, Tyler. I was just looking it up. Des Bryant, Julio Jones have had uh, what has been described as similar in- in- injury, and the timetable is just so uncertain. And, you know, there's some guys that have missed 10 games, 11 games with this um, before. Um, it's good that he's got it now. It's good that the first big game isn't really until October 10th. Um, but when you're looking at an 11-game season and missing a quarter of that, potentially, I just think Braden Lindsay stands out as a guy who's going to be giving you that consistent production, and they're going to be leaning on him a lot when Kevin Austin's out. And I think against weak competition, those are going to be games where Braden can have huge, you know, 100-yard receiving kind of games. Yeah, I think – there's a chance for Braden. I think, like I mentioned earlier, Ben Skoranek can also be that guy too, If where if he proves himself and becomes a maybe the number one guy while um, Austin is out, then maybe once Austin comes back, it's like, oh, well, we got to keep Ben on the field somehow. We got we to gotta rotate these guys more. We're not going to um, put too much of a workload on anyone and try to, try to balance those things out. And obviously, also just the uncertainty of the injury – the uncertainty of the season, if he misses four games and maybe they only end up playing five. So who knows? We don't really know how that's going to be. So just, I guess, mathematically or statistically speaking, I would probably say no. I think he's going to be probably their most important receiver But when it, when he gets becomes healthy. But um, I think probably number of catches, I'll, 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 I'll hedge the bet there against Eric and say that he, will, he won't be the leader in terms of receptions. Next question is from Adam Luce at ACO Luce. Who steps up in Kevin Austin's place? We've kind of covered that. Let's go to the other ones. Most underrated recruit in Notre Dame's 2021 class. And he also wants to know the latest on Titus Mokayoa Atamalala. And I hope you know who I'm talking about by saying that, Carter. <laughs> yeah, good job. Uh, <laughs> most, under, 
most underrated recruit. I am so high on all three of Notre Dame's cornerback commits. Chance Tucker, Ryan Barnes, Philip Riley. Philip Riley is properly rated as the four-star recruit, so I'm not going to go with him. Though I think a lot of guys, if they were going to rank their commits, as it stands right now, I'd put him number two behind Tyler Buckner. I'd put him behind Rocco Spindler too, but I don't know if a lot of people would do that. I think he's that good, and maybe he's number one. I mean, just uh, I think Philip Riley is, is very good. But I already talked about Chance Tucker, but among that group, I'm going to go with Ryan Barnes. Because uh, he's three-star. I, I think I wrote this down. He's the number 35 cornerback on 247, also the number 449th overall player, um, which is somewhat close to a four-star. But on rivals, he's the number 55 cornerback in the class and is well outside their top group. I think he – so he's basically a mid-to-low-ranked three-star on rivals – I think Ryan Barnes is someone deserving of a four-star. Um, he's out of Maryland, and he just shows a lot of versatility. I think he could play safety, corner, nickel, and he plays at a very high level. Um, shows all the traits that you want in terms of speed, in terms of length. Um, may not be a guy that plays right away. I think if you look at all those three guys, Philip Riley is the guy who I think could play by year two. I think he's the Tariq Gracie of the group, if we're going to compare him. Just like he's the guy that can play right away, Philip Riley. Ryan Barnes, maybe not, but the finished product that Ryan Barnes will be, I think will be a four-star recruit. I think is a guy who could be drafted in the NFL. And I don't know if a lot of, of recruiting sites think that way. So I think Ryan Barnes is the option there. Yeah, I, in terms of underrated, I, I think Joe Alt is a guy that I think might be a bit underrated. I think he's got um, some room to grow, and I think he could have a, a pretty high ceiling. Um, another guy I, I kind of like as a three-star guy is Jason Anye. Um, both maybe, maybe I'm just uh, obsessed with tall guys, but both those guys have pretty good size and I think um, have the potential to grow into something um, really impactful at Notre Dame. Um, let's go back to Titus. You just wanted me to say his name, uh, Titus Mokayo Alta Malala. It's, is Notre Dame in the running there? Is there a chance for Notre Dame to make a, a push there? Yeah, Notre Dame looks to be in the lead for Titus. He's out of Iwa Beach, Campbell High School uh, in Hawaii. And, he, you know, his recruitment's a little bit weird because he seems to be playing things slowly. And Notre Dame's space is starting to tighten up. Once they add – once I believe they will add Kali and Rocco Spindler, they'll be at 17 commits in the class. Then you got space for about three to four, maybe five more. I think they're going to wait and see where they're at in a, here in a couple months before they really pursue guys committed to other schools and before they dish out more offers to guys. Tyus is a guy they've liked for a long time. I think they have the room to add a couple more defensive backs in the class. Definitely, definitely have to add one more safety. He's someone that plays both ways. He could be a wide receiver. He could be a safety. Getting him to, to commit to Notre Dame will be about committing to playing safety because that's a big need for Notre Dame. Um, Kyle Hamilton's obviously incredible. Houston Griffith looks to be in a good spot. But after those two guys, there's not a ton of – 
bodies there. So they need to add some safety in the ranks. They weren't exactly able to do that last class. Jaden Slocum, a safety out of Georgia, is another guy that is, is high on Notre Dame. So to me, who Notre Dame adds at safety will be one of those two guys, Jaden Slocum or Titus. All right. I'll add one thing in terms of the underrated thing. I'm not going to pick a player, but I think years from now, we're going to find out a lot of people are underrated just <laughs> yeah. because the evaluation process is so messed up right now. I mean, think about Kyle Hamilton, where he was rated when he, if this had, if it had been a pandemic year when he committed, would he have remained a three star? Um, because a lot of these guys haven't been able to go to camps. A lot of them won't have their seasons until after signing day. They won't have their senior season until spring. So I think you're going to have a lot of where we look back and say the analysts got it wrong and we will forgive them. Yeah, this, this, this season is going to be uh, a bit of a mess, I would imagine, in terms of uh, the recruiting uh, rankings. Uh, next question we had was, was from Wayne Usteroff. Uh, we, we've kind of touched on both of those questions. So, Wayne, thanks for the question. I, hopefully we've touched on the schedule and Rocco Spindler enough for your liking. Next question is from Nick Gruel at Mr. Underscore Groovy. I watched Logan Diggs' tape and was very impressed. I think his upside is much higher than his three-star ranking would indicate. Do you guys agree or am I overly optimistic following the Will Shipley shun? Yeah, I think with Logan Diggs, and he's a three-star guy out of, out of Louisiana, Archbishop Rummel, committed to Notre Dame last week. And, you know, I, I think he was a nice get, but I'm, I wouldn't go as far as to say he's four-star caliber. Um, there are some traits that I really like in him. He's a really patient running back. He really waits before everything opens up in front of him. He's got great vision. He's got these jump cuts that he do, does that I think makes him a little bit different. But I think as far as having the all-purpose and the production and the, the speed that you really want from an elite four-star running back, I don't know if he has that. you, you got to get a guy who's a little bit more productive. He's you know, averaging about seven or eight yards a carry, and, and you know, that's good but not great. Uh, the speed looks more to be in like a four six range um, for him. So I think he has the makings. He has uh, the makings of a guy who could really contribute a couple years down the road. And I do like the balance that he brings. He's really well built at six foot one ninety. Looks a little bit bigger than that. Um, I think adding him to Chris Tyree kind of balances the running game a little bit more because they're different. He's a lot more powerful. He packs a punch. Um, but, again, if you're looking for that Will Shipley type, that, that's not what they've gotten here. But I do think Lance Taylor has um, an opportunity next class. I think he's learned his lesson, kind of put all his eggs in the Will Shipley basket. Uh, and I think now, going forward, he's really going to pursue – a wide variety of top running backs. That's going to be his strategy going forward, and that's the best strategy. That's, that's the optimal way for recruiting top guys in the class. And I think he's a great recruiter. So I think, I think the Will Shipleys of the world are, are going to – the Chris Tyrees of the world, 
are going to be back at Notre Dame in 2022. Yeah, I think evaluating running back recruiting, I, I can see how people can fall in love with guys because you're not putting a lot of like three-yard runs on your running back highlight film. You're going to have a lot of impressive plays to put if you're if you're a college level running back. You're going to have a, a pretty good chunk of impressive plays to put on your highlight reel. Um, I try to I try to put it this way, like. Does he is he in the Dexter Williams Josh Adams category? Who Dexter was a four star, Josh was a four star on twenty four seven Sports, but not on Rivals. Or is he Jameer Smith, Sebo Flemister? And I, I think he he's more in the latter category with Jameer and Sebo being three star guys. I think he's more in that category than uh, someone like Josh Adams or Dexter Williams. Um, so um, I think he's probably in the right spot right now as a three star. Now certainly you can see guys that. Like I mentioned, Josh Adams was a three-star rivals, and so he can certainly outperform his his ranking. But I think three-star seems pretty fitting for for Logan. Yeah, and also let's remember what three-star and four-star means. Three-star is not bad. Like that that means that you're you know if, if you're high enough in the three-star scale, you're supposed to be a multi-year competent player, like starter. Um, you know. Uh, if you're not drafted um, and you're just a multi-year starter, I mean, that's a three-star guy. Four-star is supposed to be, hey, you really showed out and, you know, you're – like, isn't Julian Love is basically a four-star, like, because he got drafted in the fourth or fifth round. Five-star is only first-round guys, all-world guys. I think even Chase Claypool would have qualified as a four-star and not a five-star because he was a second-round pick. So to be a five-star, you've got to be Liam Eikenberg, first-round pick, Quentin Nelson, first-round pick. To be a four-star, it's like second round to fifth or sixth round, and then three-star is like maybe gets drafted, but at minimum pretty good multi-year starter. So, you know, the three three-star being bad thing – still not too bad. I mean, that's still an honor to be considered a guy who should be a multi-year starter. Yeah. Um, I, I, I agree with the, the star thing. Cause that's what I always bring up. People like, will get upset. Well, we didn't get any five stars, but there could be like three guys that are like 10 spots away from being a five star. And those guys are still good too. Like there's a wide range of being a four star recruit of being a, a top 50 kid and being a top 250 kid. There's a big, there's a big gap in there, in my opinion. So I think sometimes people, I think the star system makes sense, but there is a difference within the stars of how good a player is. It's not every three stars the same and not every four stars the same. Um, one more recruiting specific question um, from Jim Junkie 88. Who are, or who is Notre Dame trying to flip? Yeah. So right now it's kind of foggy, kind of fluid. I think they're just mostly focused on the guys that they really consider high priorities. Prince Colley, Rocco Spindler, Jaden Thomas, Sierra Wright, uh, Titus, we mentioned, um, maybe Donovan Edwards, Nolan Rucci, a handful of guys. But, you know, I think the scholarship space is something they're going to have to wait and see on. They're over the limit right now when they have to meet that requirement, and Eric, you might pitch, pitch in on this, is a little, I guess there's some gray area there. And, and I think they have to wait until November, December to see, okay, who's 
Like, are we having a season? Is there a spring season? Will there be players that opt out? Um, what, what will the scholarship situation be? And then that, that will dictate, oh, you know, we have two spots. Either get a grad transfer or let's go after this guy, this three-star linebacker committed to, you know, Louisville or, or whatever it might be. So right now I don't think they're overly aggressive because they don't know fully where they're going to be at. Again, after this weekend, they should be at 17 commits. Only a few spots left, but they could lose or gain spots depending on what happens. I asked Jack Swarbrick Thursday night about the 85 scholarship thing, and I did not – it was the one question I didn't include the question or the answer because it was confusing to me. Um, <laughs> so – I think, and, and, and then you kind of get into the calculus of it, you know, if there's opt-outs, how that affects it. And if there's, uh, you know, I think he was under, usually the, the deadline to get to that number is the first day of fall semester classes. Yep. I kind of got the impression from him that the deadline was going to be the start of your season this year when you first start playing games but I didn't have that confirmed from the NCAA. So I didn't want to use it. Um, not that I don't believe Jack. I just hadn't seen that anywhere else. And mm-hmm. so I, I agree with you. There's going to be some fluidity in terms of what the numbers look like. I think the one thing that won't happen is, and I got asked this in chat on Thursday is if there is no season, if the season is canceled, will Notre Dame invite everybody back that had expiring eligibility and, and will other schools do that too. And I don't think you can afford to, I, I think there's going to be such a financial crunch in 2021 and trying to recover that you can't just add extra scholarships that you're going to have to stay at 85 and the people that didn't get to play their final season, it's just going to be, you know, and don't have any eligibility left are just going to be kind of, out of luck, just like a lot of the people with spring sports were. Yeah, well, I, I know that they did. They were letting school kids in the spring come back, and there were some Notre Dame athletes that had said that they would come back for an extra year. But I don't know the financial. Set. There wasn't, but it wasn't universal in terms of them inviting everybody. Right, back. right. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how many they invited and how many took advantage of that. I just know that, that they had announced certain players had in, yeah and said that they would be back. I think they cherry picked a little bit. Yeah, and, and obviously, and in those sports, those those athletes aren't necessarily always on full scholarship either. So they might not even be giving them a full scholarship by coming back at the next year. So um, I was hoping, and still hope, to maybe try to find out more about that. I wanted to do something on some of those players that have been coming back, but haven't been able to work that out yet. So we'll see if we get some more information on either of those fronts. But yeah, it, it's a, definitely a strange year to be in the like roster trimming business. I. Uh, it would be – you would think that they probably have a good understanding of how that would work out, but I think there's always a chance that maybe a kid or two doesn't realize what's coming or um, maybe it's a questionable health-wise and this pushes him out um, because there just isn't room. I don't know how Notre Dame's going to handle that. It's, it's, a, it's a sticky situation for sure. All right, a couple more questions we have and we'll get out of here. The next one is from Rich Marazzi. Assuming an optimal roster with full health and no academic issues, 
which team of the Brian Kelly era would win the most games in a round robin versus all the others? You know, if football were played the way still the way it was in 2012, I would like that team just because of their front seven. That was such a dominant front seven that they could just take over games and they did it 12 times. The thing is football isn't played that way anymore. And I think maybe not so much Manti Teo, but you know, Notre Dame, other linebacker, whoever happened to be on that particular day, Dan Fox or Carlo Calabrese would get exposed. And I think the secondary would also get exposed. I think the 2020 has a chance to be the best team overall, but I think right now the 2018 is the most balanced and the most proven. So that's my vote. Yeah, I'd I'd go 2018. And for the same reason that it it sounds silly, but in six years, the game just changed so much to where – you know, if you're a 250-pound linebacker, or if you can't cover in space, it's going to get exposed, you know. Chris yeah, Fink, Bo Bauer would be a starter in the 2012 style. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And, yeah, and I think uh, Notre Dame's defense in 2018 just had so much going for them with Julian Love, Kyle Kareem, Julian Aquara. I mean, uh, and then the safeties, obviously – uh, there was hardly a weakness on that defense. And then obviously uh, pretty good on the offensive line, Dexter Williams, Miles Boykin, and Chase Claypool. And then Ian Book really playing incredibly well down that stretch uh, that he was playing in, one of the best completion percentages in the country. Um, I just, yeah, 2018. And I think they'd be better than the 2020 team as well. But um, we'll we'll see about that. But yeah, I'm I'm going with 2018. I need a, I need a ruling for you guys. Do they have to have the same coaching staff? No, because that that's the only thing that is preventing me from picking the 2015 team. I think uh, with a better defensive coordinator, that 2015 team would would is it's probably the most talented Notre Dame team. And I think because otherwise, if we're taking with we're including the coaching staff, I think I'd probably go 2012 because even though the game has changed, I think probably only that 2015 team with Will Fuller is the team that I think would give Notre Dame the most struggles. Um, but I, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I think the, the 2015 team, I think, is the best quarterback, and I think that goes a long way. I think that if you're playing all these teams in a round robin format, that that um, that I'd pick Deshaun Kaiser to, to be the guy to, to navigate that um, with all the talent around him. Um, but I think overall, I think the best team was probably the 2012 team. I think they'd find a way to at least maybe cover that 2018 team. Um, I know you got Miles Boykin and Chase Claypool there. Um, but I, I think that um, – so if we're, if we're including the coaching staff, so I'm going 2012. If we're not including the coaching staff, so I'm going 2015. I don't know if that's a bit of a cop-out, but um, – that's that's how I I'd lean on that, but an interesting question. I like that one. Last one we got is from Brendan at Very Piratey, our um, pinch hit uh, Photoshop expert who always has good photoshops of us. Uh, with Seven Eleven buying Speedway for twenty one billion dollars, which I did not know or was not aware of, 
and ushering in what I can only assume a cosmic shift in Carter's eating habits. Is there a similarly big change you see for college football after the tumultuous 2020 season? Hey, I've been eating well. Okay. (laughs) This, this pandemic I've, I've been dieting. So I'm, I've not been eating the pizzas from Seven Eleven. That was a one. That was also a one-time thing. So <laughs> that's all I'm going to say about that. As far as uh, Carter's mom has been cooking for him. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Being in <laughs> Dallas, I've been very fortunate uh, with being with family. Um, as far as college football, the landscape changing after 2020. I think the just the biggest thing beyond, I guess, maybe the financial stuff, is player empowerment. I mean, look what we've seen over the last few months with Pac-12 and the Big Ten's players banding together, laying out kind of their demands for for their conferences. Uh, We saw what the reaction was after George Floyd's death uh, and, and just how players from several universities have banded together and how at Notre Dame, you know, they've, they, had a, they had a player walk. They had their Twitter accounts, their social media accounts really uh, embracing and, like, broadcasting out what their players wanted to say. Um, and then with where NIL is headed, uh, I think the name image likeness stuff is gaining some real traction and, and could take place. I think college football players – understand now that college football and universities and athletic departments do not work without them. And so they realize that the things that they've always wanted, the things that they want to say carry weight now because, you know, they have the power to do that. Um, And where that's all headed and what's good, what isn't good, what's too much, what's too little. I'm, I'm not going to get into that, but I think that the landscape of all that for sure is changing and it will look entirely different in the years to come. My thought about Brendan is that anybody that can turn Carter into Kelly Clarkson (laughs) is a guy that I'll answer any question for. Um, I think Carter had a great answer there, so I'm not going to add too much to that. I do think the financial realities are going to be so different in 2021. Even if there's a season that's completely played without incident this year, I think it's just going to change the way that coaches are are rewarded. It's going to change the arms race with facilities to a large extent, and it's going to widen the gap between the power five and the group of five. And I think, you know, we may even see a split at some point because of that. Uh, So the whole structure with the NCAA and so forth, it's just incredible. We're going to look back at this at some point and say, boy, this was a really big, important chapter in the history books, not just in the whole world, but in in the college football world and college sports world. Yeah, I think, I think this sort of accelerates and magnifies a lot of the issues and, and where some of the differences are. I, I'd be curious to see if this conference-only schedule thing is something that maybe conferences say, hey, maybe this is what we should be doing. Will, um, it, will conferences be less interested in paying for, for schools to come play them um, or s- schools 
would be the paying, not the conferences. But um, like you mentioned, the Power Five breakaway, that I think that is something that could be accelerated. I'm curious to see how the player movement stuff happens with the Pac-12 and Big Ten groups. I still think it's incredibly challenging to get all the, so many enough players on the same page with that um, to try and make an impact. Um, but we'll see if that will, if, if they can sort of pull that off. I think um, there is more public pressure on universities and conferences and the NCAA as a whole in terms of um, making things right with these players and, and not being taken advantage of. And I, certainly there are differing opinions on the value of what players are already getting. I, I, I tend to agree that they tend to agree with people that say that these players are getting a lot. And if you put a, actual value on all the training and everything that they are actually receiving. Um, the, the dollar amount would be pretty high. Um, but I think there is some room there for, for evening out the, the, the disproportionate balance between the coaches and the players and the, the, the money the athletic departments are making, but there's complications that come with all of that. So I, I, it's interesting to see in this financial situation that some of these athletic departments are put in, is going to going to really challenge them to be creative and, um, understanding what their needs are, what what is it worth spending all this money in, in ways that maybe aren't actually improving programs and are just trying to keep up with other other programs, and how can you you best put your athletes in the best positions? And hopefully, there's some real evaluating going on um, at, at the various levels for all these different programs. But it, it's going to be fascinating to see how all this changes, and I think it will lead to some changes. I, I don't know that those changes will happen quickly. Um, they might be slow and gradual, but I think uh, there probably will be some changes coming down the line in, in various various numbers of ways. All right, that's it for this week's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Leave us a review or rating if you like what you hear. Hopefully we can get back to a more regular schedule here in the coming weeks as football, if football remains on track. And uh, We'll, we'll see when Notre Dame gets started up with practice, what kind of access we get to either interviews or watching practices. We're a little skeptical of how all that's going to work out because everything is very uncertain. But it seems like football at least has a possibility of being played, and so that is exciting, and we hope to keep you guys updated on everything that happens moving forward.